Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. National Emergency Medical Services Week, that's starting today. It brings together local communities and medical personnel to publicize safety and honor the dedication of those who provide day-to-day life-saving services on medicine's front line. And today, we are joined by EMS Chief Dean Nakano and Dr. Michael Hayashi, Trauma Medical Director for Queens Medical Center. And we're going to talk about the importance of having people who know what to do in an emergency around us all the time and what we in the general public can do to help. So thank you, gentlemen, for coming in today. My pleasure. Now we're celebrating you guys because you definitely do save lives on a regular basis. And, you know, I thought we might start off talking a little bit about the joint project that you described about how to stop bleeding. You mentioned, Dr. Hayashi, that this is something supported by the White House and that this is a way that people can even in their own world or community figure out ways that they can start saving folks who might have an injury right in front of them. You know, it's funny because I always think to myself, you know, for us in the medical profession, we're always told, okay, stop bleeding, provide compression, put some sort of tourniquet on it if you can, if it's available. And yet when you hear about things like major casualties that occur in other areas, not everybody has that information. So Tell me about stopping the bleed and saving lives. Sure. So the Stop the Bleed program, it was born out of the the mass casualty and active shooter events that we've been seeing, you know, especially over the last you know ten years. And a lot of them have hit very close to home in terms of schools and you know concerts, restaurants. But the program has evolved into just teaching the lay public about bleeding control from any source. You think about you know, the hikers that fall or kitchen accidents, workshop, you know, mishaps. And there's there's opportunities for bleeding control all over the place. And so this program really teaches the basics, similar to CPR, and it's about applying direct pressure, wound packing, and then tourniquets or a makeshift tourniquet if uh, if you don't have anything else. And And so this is a collaborative project. It was started by the American College of Surgeons, but really it, it drew in a lot of other partners, including the NAEMT and then the DOD, and went all the way up to the White House, and it's something called the from the Hartford Consensus, and that's where this program has um, developed. And what we're going to do here in Hawaii is the same thing they're doing nationally, which is to distribute this through the first responders and then the trauma centers, and do a lot of community outreach. And you can find more information on bleedingcontrol.org. But it's it's really teaching those basic skills similar to what CPR is. And the vision is that the uh, public will see next to AEDs these bleeding control kits with tourniquets and um, wound compression type uh, supplies. So really trying to make the general public into their own sort of first responder mm-hmm. before they get an opportunity to call for the professional first responders. Absolutely. So the the initiative is to build up the national resilience and to arm, you know, our citizens with that that knowledge and the skill because when you look at those kinds of, you know, really catastrophic events and you see the pictures of the Boston Marathon bombing or these uh, Pulse nightclub shootings, it's neighbors and friends who are you know, assisting someone right next to you that got shot and you have to hold on for dear life and that that pressure that you apply might be staving off bleeding that will keep that person alive until EMS and 
you know, Chief Nakam's team can come in to swoop you up and bring you to the trauma centers. It really can literally save a life. Absolutely. It's an important thing, and I'm glad that you have brought this to our attention, and this is a collaborative effort because as with CPR, you know, the more you educate the public, as with automatic external defibrillators, the more that you provide this device, there are always going to be people for whom their life is saved because that equipment was available. And so if they need a tourniquet, if they need to have bleeding stopped, this is just another opportunity to give them a chance to literally survive some type of traumatic event, whether it be accidental or otherwise. Now, a lot of times people think, oh, if you get in trouble, you know, we have lots of ambulances and emergency medical personnel around. And we were just talking earlier, uh, Chief Dean Nakano, about what resources we actually have available. So, you know, we've got an island of about a million folks on any average day, we have about a million and a half visitors. How many ambulances and personnel do we have available? We have uh, 18 full-time ambulances and two part-time ambulances that only work 12 hours a, sh- a day. Uh, we have about 150 paramedics or mobile emergency care specialists, and we have about 100 EMTs or em- emergency medical technicians. It honestly sounds like we don't have enough. We don't have enough. What would be enough? Enough would be for enough staff to probably staff 25 to maybe 30 ambulances versus our 20 right now. And it's not just about actually physically having the ambulance. It's also about having the ability to have personnel staff that. Correct. And to have the manpower, literally, or woman power, whatever we want to call it. Because, you know, there's a lot more that goes into that than just driving from point A to point B. Yeah, our, our people are really highly trained, but they're really dedicated to the job of saving people's lives. I think about it like whenever there's a fire and people run away from it, your team are the people that run towards it. You want to go save people's lives. If there's some major casualty, if there's some major accident, you guys are the ones that actually know what to do. There have been a couple of times when I've been at you know, one time at Costco or another time I was somewhere else and somebody has an injury and I'm like, okay, well, they fell down or they hit their head. And as soon as EMS comes, I'm like, all right, these are the people who really know what they're doing because I'm in my clinic during the day managing hypertension and cholesterol and maybe some diabetes control. But I am not going to be as an expert as you would be, as either one of you would be in a first responder situation. So I usually respectfully step away and go, let the professionals take care of this I'm not worried about your sugar, you know, or something to that effect. So how how long have you been practicing in the emergency medical profession, Chief Dean? <clears throat> Longer than I've been alive? 38 years. Okay, I'm older than that. I wish I could be 38. That would be my age. I would lie and tell people I am. I'd like to stay that forever. But okay, 38 years. In those years, what have you seen change in the course of your profession? When I first started, we had uh, 13 ambulances covering the whole island. So in 38 years, we've gained five to get to our 18 plus the two, so 20. So we haven't gained that many ambulances in 38 years. No, we really haven't, and the population has gotten much bigger. Yes. What else is different? Is the equipment lighter? Is there a little bit more ability to get to places and... You know, is there a way that things have changed technologically as well? Well, we do have better equipment, but 
getting from point A to point B has been, it gets more difficult as the traffic, everybody knows about Honolulu's traffic. And for an emergency vehicle to get to your traffic, it takes a lot. So the most important thing I think of when I see an ambulance in my rearview mirror is get out of the way and just either move to the side, whether it be the left or the right, get out of the way. And yet I often seem to think that people are so afraid someone behind them is going to get in front of them. They'll get out of the way only a little bit, but not all the way. If if an ambulance is in your rearview mirror, what which direction should you go or should you just find a way to clear a path? You should find a way to clear a path and... Above all, don't just stop. You know, in the middle of the road, right, right in front of the ambulance, because you don't know which way to go. You got to make a decision. You got to go either to the left or to the right, so the ambulance can get through. There have got to be some pretty expert drivers driving those vehicles. Yes, there are. So, what has been one of the most interesting rescues that you've participated in over the last thirty-eight years? Uh, no, well, I can I can think about the, um, when they were building the Admiral Thomas. When they were building it, okay. So that was quite a while ago. Uh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> so the the uh, crane operator, you know, the 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 guy on the top of the building was having a, a medical emergency, so we had to go and get him. So that's all those stairs that we see crisscross the cranes. You actually had to go up there, not just yourselves, but with your equipment. Correct. And when we got to the top of the building, I'm not sure what story they were on, but it was pretty high. But they had just laid this um, fresh cement, so we couldn't walk on the cement. So they put some wood that we could um, walk on so we wouldn't get stuck in the cement. Oh, I'm scared already. <laughs> and then we had to cross this little open space that you look down and you could see the ground. So, and there was with us carrying our equipment. Oh, I, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you watch on TV and go, that would never happen in real life. And yet, yes, it did. Yes, it did. So you had to get this individual out of the crane and get them back. How do you how do you carry someone down on a stretcher down all those stairs? Um, we had a lot of help. You know, we had the Very fire department. Very carefully. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. So that was probably one of the most dramatic rescues that I could think of that you would have participated in. And I, I would imagine, I hope the individual did well. Yeah, he did. Well, he owes you guys a lot, particularly for hauling all the way up. I bet that was probably one of the top floors. We're going to talk about some more interesting things that both of you experienced. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and when we come back, we're going to talk with EMS Chief Dean Nakano and Dr. Michael Hayashi, Trauma Medical Director for Queens Medical Center, on the things that people need to do if they see an emergency in front of them and what sorts of things trauma centers see on a regular basis that might just surprise you. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. 
Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And today we are celebrating National Emergency Medical Services Week. And we're joined by EMS Chief Dean Nakano and Dr. Michael Hayashi, Trauma Medical Director for Queens Medical Center. And we're talking a little bit about what is our current capacity and how we all can take part in rescuing ourselves, doing some first responding if we have the education and know how to do so. You might see some of those AEDs or automatic external defibrillators They're available at a lot of the local gyms and schools and the airport. And there's also other types of equipment that may be nearby and hopefully soon something called bleeding control kit. So this is a way that you could potentially save a life by stopping bleeding if someone in front of you or nearby has an accident. And all the information is inside that you need to know to be able to hopefully help stop bleeding in someone who might have had an injury, had a shooting or had a stabbing or just fell down and have, you know, a laceration or some big source of bleeding on their leg if they're hiking or elsewhere. So things that we all could do to help save ourselves. Now, right before the break, we heard about a pretty amazing rescue when the Admiral Thomas building was being built by EMS Chief Dean Nakano and how sometimes you get yourself in some fairly precarious situations trying to rescue folks who are either in their usual location or maybe even out of their normal position and people call you. Now, just to clarify, you know, you call an ambulance when you have an emergency. You don't necessarily call an ambulance to get a ride somewhere. You know, you really shouldn't say, well, I kind of want to go to see my doctor. Uh, Let me just call an ambulance to get there. And you really shouldn't call an ambulance just because you want to get to the pharmacy to refill your medicine. You should call them if you truly have an emergency. What are some of the common things that people call ambulances for that really make perfect sense, like strokes, heart attacks, or these things you see regularly? Strokes, heart attacks, anytime you're short of breath, or you're feeling dizzy and you think you're going to pass out. Yeah, don't drive your car if you think you're going to pass out. That is just not a good plan, even in our traffic. Yes. So those sorts of things you see. What about traumatic things? I mean, I guess if you... If you get called, you never know what it could be. Someone might have fallen down and broken a hip or some other type of situation. Well, with our growing uh, elderly population, there's a lot of fall cases. And when they fall, they usually break something. It's usually their hip or, you know, one of their um, limbs. But we have a lot of traffic accidents. Um, Some can be serious because of the, if they're on the H1 or H2 and they're at high speed. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's always things we hear about certain roads where you know that there are some dangerous areas. People may be speeding. People may be not seeing pedestrians. It might be dark. There might be issues with lighting. So that's another thing that I think we often don't recognize is for those of us who spend our morning in traffic, you know, fender bender is one thing, but serious high speed accidents is another. And they are very serious and can be fatal in a lot of cases. Now, Dr. Hayashi, what sorts of cases do you commonly see on your daily shift in uh, in the trauma center, the emergency room? The same kind of cases the chief was just talking about. A lot of car accidents. Pedestrians get hit a lot here in Hawaii as well. Um, a lot of falls. And with the elderly, you know, especially there's you know preventive efforts at home that you can do to, to increase the safety, grab bars and such. Um, as we get older, there's a lot of concerns about maintaining your ability to react and be aware of, you know, those surroundings, you know, with changes in your vision and your hearing and that reaction time to respond to an 
to an emergency or a change in, in the environment. And those are just some of the problems that you know we see. But there are some uh, gunshots and knife wounds that tend to make headlines. Luckily, Hawaii is pretty safe, so we have a lower number than, I'd say, the national average for what we call penetrating trauma. But we've replaced it with unusual you know, other trauma, like shark bites and spear gun accidents. And somehow, you know, we still get into a lot of assaults and fist fights or people find a way to punch through a, a piece of glass and expect Something not they to get shouldn't. hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I would think we also have our fair share of near drownings. That mm-hmm. sort of ocean safety is something that we often don't think about as heading to a trauma center. But that's definitely if somebody is found and there's an issue and they've been snorkeling and if they've, you know, they need to be rescued, that's another situation where I would imagine they would be brought by EMS directly to the hospital, particularly to the nearest one. But if it's traumatic event to your medical center. Absolutely. What sorts of things do you think people should not go to the trauma center for but often do? Well, for trauma, it's it's hard to say, you know, because uh, trauma, we, we just kind of have an open door and we trust the, the EMS providers to to know which cases need to go across the island to get to Queens and the ones that can go to the nearest you know, hospital. I think the challenge is more for the non-trauma patients, so your common colds and, and your back pains, things that maybe you could see a primary care yeah, doctor. Yeah, please for. don't go to the emergency room for a work note. I mean, I just, I find that to never be an emergency, that you need a note for your work. And it just, you know, it's it's not an emergency. You can get that from your regular doctor or you can get it some other way. It just, so, so for the trauma perspective, you really are somewhat isolated in the sense that you would get cases directly from EMS. And so there's a fair bit of communication that is involved so that you would know exactly what materials and equipment to have immediately available with, based on the accident and the injury or whatever it is that you're treating. Right. That's where we rely on both EMS and our ED partners. So the ED physician, at least at Queens, will take the Medicom report and decide, okay, do I need to pull the trigger on the trauma team and do I just get the basic or do I get the full trauma team with the anesthesiologist and the, you know, the respiratory therapist, all the additional support that you might need in case it's something very, very severe. So for us, we have a couple of layers of screens to to kind of sort through the patients that need the trauma team versus just need basic emergency services. So what are some of the strangest things that you've seen? And and I know that this is particularly related to, to trauma, but what are some of the unusual things in your career that you have seen thus far? You kind of alluded to shark bites, which I always think you know, you take a young, healthy person that's out there in the ocean, they're swimming, they're surfing, they're doing something that's a water sport, and then, like, they're losing a body part. That's got to be just just totally shocking to them, and then also not something that I hope I would ever see on a regular basis or that you would, but I suspect that's one of those things that comes in that is sort of a major kind of an injury and, and issue that you deal with. What are some of the other sort of maybe less common but but – Interesting and and maybe unfortunate things that you see that you wish you didn't. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's hard to pick out those particular memories because they all seem to mix together. It seems like the same patient, just with a different mix of of injuries. I think some of the stories that stick out are those those ones that that are really, I guess, tremendous. So you talk about shark shark bites. Recently, there was a, a young man who was. 
uh, bitten by a shark in in um, uh, the Big Island. And it was an off-duty fire firefighter that applied the tourniquet and really staved off some bleeding, got the patient to North Hawaii Community Hospital. They did some initial stabilization there and then transferred the patient by air medical to Queens for some definitive care and ended up going to the mainland for uh, some advanced reconstructive surgery. But to me, that that's one story that's really a testament to the entire trauma system that that we have in place. So that was someone who even had to get medevaced from another island to Oahu mm-hmm. to be seen at Queens and then subsequently had further surgery done even at another location. Yes. So do the air ambulances fall into EMS or are they their own separate type of system? They're separate. They're separate. Okay. So EMS is ground-based. So we have ambulances that are available here on Oahu. Obviously, I don't think enough if we have a total of 20 and yet we have on any given day up to 2.5 million folks, uh, the visitors and the residents who could potentially have an emergency. How many calls does an ambulance go on on an average day? In town on a 12-hour shift, it can run from 15 to 20 calls in a 12-hour shift. And so how about some of our rural rural areas here on Oahu? Unfortunately, because we're so busy, uh, a lot of times you'll hear Aia or maybe Kailua or Kaneohe or even Waipau coming in to run calls in town, taking them out of their area and then the outlying areas got to cover their area. So you wind up having this shift of personnel and trying to figure out how to make sure that you have coverage for certain areas. Because, right. you know, in those sorts of situations, time is is could potentially make all the difference. It does. But, you know, when we got those 911 calls, we got to respond. You have to respond. We can't just let them, you know, okay, we don't have anybody to send. We got to send. No, you've got to do something about it. All right. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Chief Nakano and Dr. Hayashi about some of the things that we could do in the community to make sure that we keep ourselves safe. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Hayashi and EMS Chief Dean Nakano about things that happen in the emergency medical services world, because this is National EMS Services Week, and that really brings together everyone who's a first responder. Thus far, we've been hearing about some of the challenges that go on in the community and some of the things that we can all do to help one another, including learning appropriate first aid techniques and learning how to utilize the 911 system to the best of their ability and to the best of our ability to to keep ourselves safe. What are some of the things, Dr. Hayashi, that you think the community ought to know about how to stay safe? I mean, I'm sure you see accidental issues and I'm sure you see, you know, assaults and other sorts of things that hopefully we wouldn't have people with knives or guns, but reality is we do. What can the community do to keep themselves safe? Well, there's a lot of preventive measures. If you think about helmet safety, helmets aren't typically cool, but you know, there's a lot of skateboarders that got injured from um, going too fast and hitting their head, or even bicyclists, especially with the, the way the bike lanes are set up. 
you know, King Street, for example, is a major thoroughfare. It's one way, but the bike lane goes two ways. So it's very easy to hit somebody that you wouldn't see coming with the flow of, of the car traffic. Um, Helmets is a real good one because I think sometimes people don't think of that for activities other than biking. And, you know, one of the theories behind the bikes that are accessed and available out there is that the benefits of having people exercise is probably better than the potential to have them have an injury and not have a bike helmet. But all the bike stations, they don't necessarily have helmets available. So if you do have one and you're going to ride some of these bikes, bring your helmet with you. And it's something that I think you're right. When the bike lanes are available and cars are going in both directions, boy, I work at Straub. And when people go to pull in, they're not used to looking behind them to see if there's somebody Mm -hmm. coming up. And it's just, it's a scary place because you've got cars parked and then you've got the bike lane. So we really all need to be quite a bit more knowledgeable and aware of our surroundings. That Um, and, you know, trauma goes hand in hand with sort of fun activities, right? You think about the hikers, you know, they go for these extreme hikes on the mountain tip tops and when they fall it can be devastating or you know if you think about the drivers that go too fast you know it's it's sort of fun to to speed and unfortunately that's the consequences of you know when things go wrong you know, motorcyclists they're not very protected a lot of people don't wear full gear and if they have to lay down their bike sometimes they lose a whole lot of skin and you know break a lot of organs on the inside so Trauma is, is one of those diseases that just kind of goes hand in hand with living. And so unless you're going to live in a bubble, you're always going to be exposed to something, whether it's your own actions or the person next to you. And and so it's something that we'll always have to deal with. And prevention is, is key. There's a lot of public safety measures in place to to help keep us safe, but it's nearly impossible to, to cure it completely. You make me want to live in a bubble. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Chief Nakano, you've seen a lot of stuff in your 38 years of of working in the EMS world. What are some things that you think people should take a look at and try and do to avoid becoming someone who winds up a patient of Dr. Hayashi or his colleagues? Well, I think the number one thing is don't drink and drive. Very important. Mm-hmm. Don't Absolutely. Do, don't do drugs and drive. And a lot of um, assault cases are happening when people are partying and somebody says the wrong thing, and that's how fights start. And that, again, is one of those things where I don't know if people, if they weren't drinking or if they weren't exposed to drugs or if they were just normally just hanging out with friends, I would hope that wouldn't be such a violent situation where they say the wrong thing and somebody gets all up in their face about it. But I suspect it happens no matter where you could be. And you bring up a very good point about being careful with driving and that, you know, some people may say, well, I wasn't drinking. But if they were exposed to any other drug or if they were exposed to marijuana or doing some other type of type of drug that could impair their ability to get behind the wheel of a car. You know, these days you've got Uber, you've got Lyft, you've got taxis, you've got friends. There's so many different options that you can consider rather than driving that vehicle yourself. Because it's not just you, but it's also all the other people around you, like you mentioned, Dr. Hayashi, that it's not you may not be the only person who suffers. There may be consequences to other innocent folks. And that's another important thing to consider. What about situational awareness? I always think to myself, if you if you look around, I mean, you're not supposed to walk across the street looking at your cell phone these days. And <laughs> the fact that we have to legislate some common sense to me is pretty amazing. 
But, you know, situational awareness, I think, is important for everybody to look at, to know where you're at, know what you're doing, and be careful with where you're you're exposing yourself to some potential risk. Do you think we, we need more of that here? It's changed. Our, our culture has changed a lot. Where, you know, people in some neighborhoods never used to lock their houses because they trusted everyone. And now you got a lot of people who are struggling with uh, pain medication addiction. And they could be your, your neighbor, they could be your friend, and you wouldn't even know it. And that changes uh, normal behavior. That's very true. That You know, there are a lot of different risks out there that alter behavior in ways that we don't otherwise really think about, and it could put everyone at risk. So I want to thank both of you for all of the hard work and expertise that you bring to your job every single day. So thank you from from me and from my profession for all the hard work that you both do and for all of the emergency responders and the people who truly are out there in the front line. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we'll see you next week when we talk more about ways to stay, stay safe right here on The Body Show. Thank you.